Here again is John Hickman. By 1957, much of John Meston's time was devoted to writing the television series. Other writers were called upon for the radio scripts. Again, Norman MacDonald. One of the other people that wrote for us uh, was Les Crutchfield. I first came to know Les when uh, he was still working at uh, Caltech as an engineer. But at that time, uh, which must have been 46 or 47, he came in to see Bill Robeson with a script for a Columbia workshop, which Bill bought, and Les was on his way toward being a very successful writer. Les worked with me on later on Escape and on Romance and uh, a number of shows. And when we did start Gunsmoke, it just was obvious that Les would have to be part of the family, which indeed he was. He wrote not as many as Meston, but uh, more perhaps than any other single writer. Les was a, a warm and uh, very funny and very charming man. He was his own man, and he did what he wanted when he wanted. So if you needed him desperately to do a script, he might be available, or he might have been on his way to Africa, uh, and you really never knew. But when he was in town, he wrote well, and uh, he was dependable. Perhaps Les did more um, of the light or of the comedy shows than uh, John Meston. Uh, one in particular that I always enjoyed was... Uh, a script called Colleen So Green, which in which this attractive girl comes to town and completely befuddles Doc and Chester and everybody else in town, including Mr. Botkin at the bank. But one of Les's scripts that I remember particularly, and perhaps personifies the kind of writing that uh, made him such a valuable piece of manpower for Gunsmoke, was a script that he wrote called Tag Your It. <laughs> duck call. I ordered all the way from St. Louis. It just come in the mail. Doesn't sound like any duck I ever heard. Oh, it's guaranteed, Mr. Jones. <laughs> See, any duck that hears this comes right at you. <laughs> you better be careful. We don't want the jail overrun with them. Oh, well, they ain't none around yet, but they just about do. When they start coming through, I'm going to get down there in them bushes along the river with a shotgun and, and this thing. Hey, Mr. Dillon, we're going to be eating roast duck every day for three months. I'm glad to hear that, Chester. Uh, it takes kind of a knack to bone. Uh-huh. It takes a little dab of practice, and I ain't got it down exactly yet, but I will. <laughs> Gentlemen. Gentlemen. Uh, oh, uh, come in, mister. You're Marshal Dillon? Yeah, that's right. I am Cyrus Taggart, Marshal. Possibly you've heard of me. Uh, I'm afraid not, but uh, what can I do for you, Mr. Taggart? You can give me your complete cooperation. Oh? I have here a photograph of a young lady. I have reason to believe she is in Dodge City. Why, Mr. Dillon, that... Uh, go on, Mr. Taggart. Suppose she is here. She's my daughter, Evie Taggart. She ran away from home nearly a year ago, and she has made it very difficult to find her. Oh, and if you do find her? I shall take her back to New York with me, naturally. 
I assume from your partner's exclamation that you do know her. Uh, not by that name. Yes. Well, she has used a number of false names during the past year. Very well, you will take me to her at once. How old is your daughter, Mr. Taggart? Twenty-four. And then she's of legal age. Suppose she won't go back with you. Marshal, the Taggart Enterprises include railroads, several banks and finance companies, along with mining and cattle interests. I, with my father and my grandfather before me, did not acquire them by tolerating interference with our wishes. Now, why did she run away in the first place? Because she's a willful, headstrong little fool. Marshal, we're wasting time. Mr. Taggart, I'm not going to take you to her. Not just yet. May I remind you... Your enterprises, sir, don't include the United States Marshal's office. I imagine my influence could extend that far, if you compel me to use it. You do as you like. But I'm going to talk to the girl first. I'm going to find out what she wants to do. What she wants is of no importance. Good day, Mr. Taggart. She keeps pretty late hours, Mr. Dillon. Maybe she ain't up yet. Yeah, maybe not. Oh, Marshal Chester. Morning, Patsy. Or, uh, I guess it's Evie Taggart now, isn't it? Oh. He's here, huh? Mm-hmm. Over the Dodge house. He says he's come to take you home. Uh, it's all right, Burl. Uh, come on in. Oh, thank you. Wouldn't do any good to run. Not now. I thought I heard you talking to some... No. You know Burl Alden, don't you, Marshal? Yeah, you deal blackjack, don't you, over the Golden Horn part-time? That's right. What's the trouble, Marshal? My father's here, Burl. Finally caught up with me. Well, what of it? You're over 21. He can't do nothing. You don't know him. What can he do, Marshal? She's got a right to live her life the way she wants, ain't she? Yeah, as far as the law's concerned, he may try other ways. He will. He'll do anything. I know him. He'll be sorry if he tries anything. I'll stick with you. You know that. I know, Burl. But I know how he can be. That's why I never wanted him to find me. Are you sure that you don't want to go back with him, Evie? Of course I'm sure. That's a rough life you're leading here, working on a long branch, having to put up with any man who comes along who's got the price of a drink. Anything would be better than going back home. You don't know what it was like, Marshal. I don't really matter to him. I never did. Just a family name he cares about. He's afraid I'll disgrace it. I'm not going back. Now, he says you are, Evie. And I'd say he's used to getting his own way. No matter what I have to do, I'm not going back. No matter what. Take it back to him, huh? Okay. Hello, Kitty. Oh, Matt, I didn't see you come in. Well, you looked busy, so I kept quiet. You know, I just assumed you hadn't come in tonight, Matt. Oh? Well, I can always have a beer up the street. No. <laughs> it's just that I did something this evening that I hate myself for. Oh? Well, what do you mean? Come on, let's sit in. <laughs> All right. 
There you are. Oh, what's it all about? Well, that girl, Patsy, who's been working here the last few months. You know who she is, Matt? Yeah. Her name's Evie Taggart. Her father came out from the east yesterday. Yeah, I know. I met him. You know he's trying to force her to go back to New York with him? Uh-huh. Well, he didn't waste any time going into action. He just sent a few telegrams east and that did it. Oh, did what? Well, Mr. Botkin came over from the bank this afternoon. He was real apologetic, but he had orders from the big bank back east that holds part of his stock. Oh, one of Taggart's banks. Yeah. Either I fired Evie or Botkin had called in our loan. And just a half hour later, I got a telegram from our wholesaler in Kansas City. Fire Evie or pay up all our consignment accounts immediately. I, I let it go, Matt. I had to. Well, you couldn't do much of anything else, could you? I got my partner to think about. The girls. You can't fight an army barehanded. Well, there's no reason to feel guilty, Kitty. You didn't have much choice. Well, I don't claim the life she's leading here is very good, but... Good or bad, at least what she wants to do, and she ought to have the rights. You know, rights are pretty hard things to hang on to sometimes. Oh, well, if there'd been any other way. Oh, here you are. Huh? Oh, he scared you off, huh? You started the ball rolling, now nobody will hire you. Take it easy, Burl. Well, whose side are you on anyway, Marshal? There's no law against what Taggart did, Burl, and Kitty didn't have any choice. She had to go along with it. The word's out all over town. Nobody will give her a job. They're afraid of his money. Well, they got reason to be. He's trying to starve her out. He thinks he'll get her back home that way. Well, it's worked before. Well, it won't this time. We'll figure some way to beat that old buzzard. Why don't you support her, Mr. Alden? I assume you are, Burl Alden. I guess you're Taggart. That's correct. As I said, why don't you support her? I understand she's been supporting you for several months. That's a lie. I got a job. Yes, yes, part-time. But you've been taking money from her, haven't you? Them was loans. What are you getting at, anyway? The fact that you're an utterly worthless loafer who lives off the earnings of a woman. Why, you dirty old... All right, hold it, Burrow. That's enough. Who do you think he's talking to? Can I give you a hand, Mr. Taggart? No, thank you. It would seem... It would seem to me that it's your job to prevent such occurrences, Marshal. You can sign a complaint if you like. No, thank you. I have something rather more drastic in mind. Good evening, gentlemen. That's a cold fish. What's he talking about, Marshal? He can't do nothing to me. I wouldn't bet on that, Burl. Good morning, Mac. Oh, hello. Uh, hello, Doc. Come on in. Oh, Chester, for heaven's sakes, put that thing away. Now, there's some coffee on the top of the stove. I don't guarantee it, though. Our duck made it. Uh, oh, well, then I pass. Well, uh, you drunk it plenty of times before, and it never hurts none, Doc. Well, a man's luck runs out, Chester. <laughs> Pull up a chair, Doc. No, no, no. Haven't got time, man. I, I don't have a plush line seat at the public trough. Like some people I know. Oh, is that so? A professional man like myself has to get out and scramble if he wants to keep body and soul together. Doc, the only time I ever seen you scramble is when Sam Noonan says, have one on the house, boys. Oh, is that so? For two cents, I wouldn't even tell you what I know. 
All right, what do you know, Doc? Oh, yes, now, nah, you got your ears off, ain't you? Yeah, you're starting to sing a different tune now. Doc. It's a fine thing when I have to do your job alone on my own. Just out of the kindness of my heart. Doc. There's going to be a killing. Killing? How do you know? Because I keep my mouth shut and my ears open. You know a gunman named Bill Jackson? Yeah, he's been around town for a month or so. Why? Well, they say that old man Taggart's hired him to kill Burl Alden. Yeah. Well, that's what Taggart meant about something more drastic. Yes. Well, anyway, I've done all the brain work for you. Now, go on out and arrest them. On what charge, Doc? They'll both deny it. Well, you're not just going to sit there and let it happen, are you? Well, I'll listen to suggestions, Doc, but in the long run, it'll probably come to just that. Dylan, let me in. Evie ain't here, Marshal. She went down to the Chinamans to bring some grub. Now, you're the one I want to see, Burl. All right. Come on in. What is it? What do you want? Burl, you made a bad enemy when you knocked old man Taggart down. I'll knock him down seven days a week if he don't stay away from us. Oh, he'll stay away, all right. But the man he's hired to kill you won't. What are you talking about? Well, the word's out that he's offered Bill Jacks $2,000 to put you on Boot Hill. Well, you got to do something, Marshal. I, I know about Jacks. you got to arrest him. I got no proof, Burl. All I can do is warn you. Well, then, then I got to get out of here. I got to get out of town right now. I'll get a horse from Moss Grimmick and head south. Well, what about Evie? Evie? Well, well, she'll be better off back home anyway. Oh, I see. Well, hitting the trail... On the run, that, that ain't no kind of a life for a woman. You think the Long Branch is any better? Now, you got no call to talk like that. What's going on? Evie, I... You tell her, Marshal. Well, where are you going? Burrow! So you see, he's gone. Go... Gone where? What do you mean? Now, your father hired a gunman to kill him. So Bill's getting out. Running away, leaving me. Well, I guess a lot of men would act that same way under the circumstances. Don't try to make excuses for him, Marshal. I know the kind he is. I've known all along. Oh? No? The life I've been living the last year isn't a, isn't a very pretty one. I admit it. I guess I've done it on purpose. Sunk as low as I could. It's a way of hitting back at my father. Yeah, it works that way sometimes. Wasn't a very pretty life at home either, Marshal. No, I guess not. Kirk wouldn't have turned you to this. I'd kill her. Well, at least I'll get that stopped. Bull doesn't deserve dying. He's, he's just, just what he is, and that's all he claims to be. There's no reason he should pay. But my father's going to. I'm going to see that he pays. Pays how? I don't know exactly. But he's going to. He's going to pay for things once and for all.
Uh, they might not, Chester. All I know is Taggart bought two tickets back east on this afternoon's train. I swear I never thought Evie'd give in and go back with him. Well, he's a hard man to beat. It's just a doggone shame the way he goes around treating people and gets by with it. He won't get by with it forever, Chester. If you keep pushing people around, sooner or later you're going to push one of them a little too far. Uh-oh. Speak of the devil, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. And by himself, too. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Nice of you to drop around to see us off. Us, Mr. Taggart? Oh, my daughter is just looking after some detail of her luggage. She'll be along. As much as I hate to disappoint you, Marshal. I would have disappointed me. It's none of my business. No, not officially, of course. But I imagine you did hold certain personal opinions. Yeah. I still do, as a matter of fact. Indeed. Such as? Such as, I think you're making a big mistake taking that girl back against her will. Oh, I assure you I'm using no straitjacket or medicals. It amounts to that, though. Why don't you give her a chance, Mr. Taggart? You can get her out of Dodge if you want, away from what she's been doing. But why don't you let her live her own life? She will live precisely as I tell her to live, Marshal. Won't work that way, Mr. Taggart. You can't treat people like horses. You can't own people. Marshal, I've built an empire on the principle of owning people. I own hundreds of them, body and soul, block, stock, and barrel. I call the tune, and they dance, and she will dance with me. You ready, Father? <clears throat> Quite ready, my dear. Well, let's go. Good day, gentlemen. Goodbye, Evie. Good luck. Thank you, Marshal. But I... I think we may meet again soon. Come along, Evie. Yes, Father. Oh, just look you there. Just look how he broke her spirit, Miss Young. She's going along meek to the line. Yeah, it looks that way. Yeah, now, what's he doing here? That's Bill Jacks. I want to talk with you, Taggart. Come on, Chester. Uh, look, look here, Jacks. There's nothing for us to talk about. All right, hold it, Jacks. Stay out of this. What are you Don't try it, Jacks. You drop your gun or I'll fire and I'll drop it! You got him, Mr. Dillon. Your father's dead, too, Evie. Father. So this is how he was supposed to pay, huh? I know what you mean, Marshal. Father had a disagreement over the price on Burl's head. What price did you put on your father's head, Evie? How much were you going to pay Bill Jacks for this? You can't prove a thing, Marshal. Not a thing. Well, we'll let the judge decide that. I don't care. As long as he finally lost. What? Father. Sure doesn't own anybody now, does he? Crutchfield's script, Tag Your It, originally heard October the 5th, 1958. Rex Corey was Gunsmoke's musical director. Corey entered radio in the 1930s, and his music has been heard on every major radio and TV network since then. Today, Rex is delighting theater audiences around the country with his pipe organ accompaniment for silent films. Corey is especially proud of the work he and his musicians performed on Gunsmoke, 
and he vividly recalls the first broadcast. I remember that when we started the music on Gunsmoke, the very initial broadcast, we used a larger orchestra. In fact, the theme uh, material, opening and closing, was recorded with a larger orchestra, and we continued to use that larger sound uh, to give it a big and more impressive opening and closing. Then we went into what we called our standard, I think, six or seven-piece combo that we used, which not so much in the interest of economy, but for the specific sound that we wanted to acquire. We felt that a large orchestra was out of place uh, with the time, the tempo. It, it didn't do the job for us. Whereas a small group, which included accordion, some harmonica, uh, guitar, uh, timpani effects, that sort of thing, were much more practical and aesthetically correct for the, the stories and the people involved. In the smaller orchestra, Rex played the T accordion while he conducted. Now, this was not the standard accordion that you strap on yourself. This was an electric T accordion, as we called it, which stood on, a, on its own standard, and you could regulate the volume from a pedal control. And the nice thing about it was that you could play both hands on the treble portion if you wanted to, or use the buttons or whatever. Uh, it could be, it was very flexible. Announcer George Walsh has his own recollections of Corey's T accordion. When they changed the orchestra, from the full size that was probably 20 pieces, it became a much smaller group, and Rex changed. With the big orchestra, he played the organ, the pipe organ, and he used to conduct from the organ bench with body English. Well, when they cut down on the size of the orchestra, he went from the organ to an accordion. He had an electric accordion built. I don't know whether this was his invention or not, but I had never seen one like it before. He didn't have to pump the bellows by hand. It became a T-shaped affair with an upright and then the accordion in two sections across the top, forming the T, so that with his, his right hand he'd, he'd play the keyboard, and then with his left hand he'd play the buttons, and then with his foot he had a control of, of an, a pedal that uh, gave him air pressure and so forth. And it was quite a strange-looking... Of course, Bill Conrad didn't have much respect for it. He referred to it as Rex Corey's electronic urinal. I think that Bill set the tone and the, the pace for Jim Arness, who later followed. Now, of course, they're two different people and two different talents, but Bill had that a great ability to establish a character in your mind, to, to, to set an image. And Bill, being the type of performer he was, with such a wide range of capability, was perfect for the part of Matt Dillon because Matt Dillon had to be a man who could be tough and who could be very sensitive at the same time. Bill had a very virile, manly voice, low-pitched. Uh, he could be very positive in his speech. Uh, he could be very tough and hard, and he could be very, very soft and sentimental. In approaching the music, for the show and realizing that Bill was a central character who set the whole pace 
and temporal, I had to consider music that would be fitting and proper for this rather complex person. This meant that the music had to be coarse and rough and tough, and it also had to be very tender and touching. Well, uh, boy, what can we do now, Della, to help you? Boy. Very dead right here. Right here. He'd like that. It's about as far west as he'll ever get. No. scope in which to operate musically, and it put demands on the musicians we had because we had to produce tonal effects to suit the situation. And uh, again, it became a wonderful challenge because you had such a wide latitude in which to work. Many of the scenes in Gunsmoke took place in the Long Branch Saloon, and to provide just the right atmosphere, a barroom piano was necessary. Corey recalls how he first created that realistic sound. We had to establish the very first scene in the Long Branch, and we had to establish the fact that there were all sorts of, of uh, coarse Western characters involved, uh, that there were dancing girls and various uh, degrees of uh, activity. And uh, the music had to be something that that would set the scene and yet be just a, a part of it. Nobody really knew what they wanted, I don't think. But I went over to the piano and I started messing around with it during rehearsal. Norman said, hey, that's good. He said, what can we do to make it a little more tinny? So we did the quickest thing we could do, and that was to get a whole bunch of paper clips and spin them together and lay them over the strings. We later refined that by getting an old beat-up upright piano and putting thumbtacks in all the hammers so that we got a real honky-tonk sound out of it. And I also had to think about the type of melody that would have been popular at that time and still not come up with a recognizable piece of music. So it was always kind of improvised in the spot in a real sort of an early 19th century uh, Western barroom style of composition. It got to be a thing where... The, we would do things on the piano just for the entertainment of the cast, even during the broadcast, because extemporaneous noise and laughter was all to the good anyway. And I found that I was having a lot of fun being inventive and trying to get reaction out of the cast by, by the type of music I played. <laughs> My goodness. Quite a crowd in the long bench tonight. Over here, Matt. Come on over here and join us. There's Doc, Mr. Bot. Can you, you want to join him, Mr. Yeah, I might as well. Oh, uh, would you pardon me, please? Hello, Matt. Good to see you. Hello, Kitty. 
Can I get you something? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, you can. The usual, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, the same for me, Miss Kitty. Uh, we'll be over at the table after dark. All right, fine. I'll join you. Good. Pull up a chair, Matt. One chair, Join us solid, respectable citizens for a change. Well, there's some who would agree with you, Doc. How are you, Stockton? Bye, Marshal. Can I buy a drink? Well, I got one coming, thanks. Oh, uh, I just saw Miss Gross outside. She, uh, tells me she's gone back east. Well, I can't say I'm sorry to hear it. For some reason, she seems to blame me for what her son did. Yeah. Most of us felt that we would make the transition normally and naturally. Certainly in my particular uh, experience, that was the way it worked. I knew that I was going to make the transition. In fact, I was already making the transition. Uh, we were doing radio and television shows at the same time. With the particular cast of Gunsmoke, uh, the blow was a, uh, a very hurting one for those involved when CBS decided to go ahead and produce it as a television show. Uh, it was a big disappointment. They had figured, I'm sure, that they would go ahead and work into the television aspect. And the whole accent was on the television series. Uh, the musical direction for it had passed into the hands of um, the man who was then, Mr. Gluskin, who was then the musical director for the, the CBS network on the West Coast. He had, he had gotten full control of the situation, and uh, I did some composition here and there. And on top of that, uh, some of the radio music has been carried over and used into the, in the, the television series as such. Uh, when the show went to an hour-long production, why, it was obvious that one composer couldn't begin to handle it all anyway, so there have been various writers along over the years that have contributed to the music that is being used on Gunsmoke. In 1957, the radio show was dealt two severe blows. First, Liggett and Myers dropped full sponsorship of the series. This led CBS to offer the program to participating advertisers. Complicating matters was the poor economic health of network radio in general. Thanks to television, advertisers were becoming reluctant to sink huge sums of money into a medium that supposedly had a dwindling audience. As a result, the network was finding it increasingly difficult to sell all the commercial time available. Public service announcements and promos started to fill the slots where only months ago, announcers George Fenneman and George Walsh extolled the delights of smoking L&M cigarettes. The second serious blow to the radio program was the loss of the live orchestra, recounted by Rex Corey. For economic reasons, it had been discovered that uh, live orchestras might not be all that necessary. Now. This, unfortunately, was triggered by a, a rather tragic and ill-timed musician strike called by the AF of M, the American Federation of Musicians, at a time when I suppose the timing was right for experimentation with recorded cues and bridges and backgrounds. I say it was ill-timed because it taught the producers and the networks that they could get along without live music. Not only did it hurt the professional musicians who were involved on many of these broadcasts, but it damaged the caliber of music because instead of having music specifically designed for a given situation or a given performance, they were picking up on a hit or miss basis 
uh, recorded music of various sorts, imported from various parts of the world, uh, with various combinations, and uh, so much of the music didn't fit. And unfortunately, our listening public has been has become conditioned to poor music in much of our drama today in television and in many other uses because of this. And Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a... Uh, a series and the series was cancelled something else popped up and you were told to start preparing for a show called such and such which would go on the air next Tuesday there was always something to replace the show that went off the air by the end of the 50s and certainly by the 60s uh, when a show went off the air that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two hour segment and it was filled with something else and that something else usually came from New York it was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio and indeed had been brought up in radio. And it was not, um, believe me, a, a matter of sour grapes because all of us who were then working on the radio show were also busy uh, and gainfully employed on the television show or some other television show. Bill Conrad was producing and directing in television. Later, he became an executive at Warner Brothers. At the same time, John Meston was writing, I think he wrote as many as 40 half-hour television episodes in one year. He was also writing regularly when it went to an hour, the television version, some 12 to 15 episodes a year. So we were all busy. But it was really the fact that dramatic radio from the West Coast was drying up. Gunsmoke passed away, if you will, just at a time when there were new kinds of audio equipment coming on the scene that would have made it marvelous. For instance, if Gunsmoke had been done in stereo or quadraphonic, if you can picture Matt's horse coming down Front Street, the whole length of it is passing from one side of your living room to the other just as it passed from one end of Dodge to the other. Or Matt's booted feet working their way all the way across the street and up the steps and into Doc's office on the second floor. Uh, it would have been rather wonderful to hear this, but radio was already on its way out then. As a footnote, Gunsmoke had the dubious distinction of being the last network dramatic program to originate in Hollywood. During the program's final four years, scripts were authored by such top Western writers as Kathleen Height, John Dunkel, Les Crutchfield, and Marion Clark. Their scripts were often alternated with some of John Meston's better offerings from previous years. Even some members of the Gunsmoke Company became authors. Director Norman MacDonald wrote numerous programs. Supporting player Vic Perrin contributed several scripts. And sound man Tom Hanley authored a hilarious story entitled Marshall Proudfoot. This program centered around Chester's father paying a surprise visit to Dodge. Parley Bear doubled his role, playing both Chester and his dad. Here's Marshall Proudfoot, as it was heard on July 20th, 1958. <laughs>
You here? Yeah, I'm here, Doug. Come on in. <laughs> oh, well, how come you're in bed so early? I'm not in bed, Doc. I'm just resting. Oh, oh I see the cost of government's going up again. Oh, what makes you say that? The soles of your boots. They're worn almost through. I don't care. <laughs> What's the matter? Aren't you feeling good? Sure, I feel fine, Doc. I always lie in bed till noon. Uh-huh, well, just doesn't look right for you to be lying down like this. Oh, for heaven's sakes. What's the matter now? It's cold. The coffee's cold in the rattlesnake's belly. Don't drink it, sir. And it's no better hot here. No man, like I was saying, a man in your position should have more to do than just lie around. Well, maybe I'm just tired, Doc. Oh, now, don't try to tell me it was brought on by upholding law and order all night, because I don't want to hear about it. I had a bad night myself. Well, then sit down and rest. Yes, I hate hearing that. Aren't you going to ask me what I was doing? No. No. Well, I spent the whole night working for four-dollar fees. Oh, well, it must have been somebody who didn't know you. Then. They knew me. Yes, it was Jeb Dorn. His wife had a baby girl. Jeb, huh? He was hoping for a boy, as I recall it. And that's what worried me. Oh, why? He refused to pay me. <laughs> no wonder you're tired. Well, who's this poster on? It says right there, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Wanted, dead or alive, Jack Cargo for the torture and subsequent murder of... Yes, 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 yes. This man is noted for armed holdup and is believed heading in the general direction of Missouri, Kansas, or Nebraska. Oh, he's a mean-looking devil, isn't he? Uh-huh. Well, I can see that he will certainly find his comeuppance if he... Sticks his head in Dodge City. Well, I tell you, Doc, I'll worry about that if he comes here. Huh? Oh, well, that gives me a nice, safe feeling. Marshal, here is me. Yeah, yeah, I'm the Marshal. I say, Marshal Proudfoot, hereabouts is me. Marshal Proudfoot? Huh? Yeah, no, neither one of you. I'll say neither one of you ain't the Marshal, I can tell. <laughs> I was Pa. I'd know him anywhere. Uh, Doc... Yeah. Go find Chester, will you? Yeah, sure, Matt. Uh, no, no, no need to get up. Just come see my boy, Marshal Chester Proudfoot. Made good somehow, he did. <laughs> Chester never was one of my brightest boys. Eleven boys I had, I remember. Say, I ain't your hand here yet. Oh, what's your name, Sonny? Dylan, uh, Matt Dillon. You know? That's a funny name for a man. I knew a man one time had the name of Hairgrove. There, oh, I, I thought that was the funniest up till now, but... Uh, Doc, uh, you better go get Chester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's that fella? Well, that's Doc Adams. Yeah, nice to know you, sir. Saying something, is he? I said it's nice now, to know Now, my name is Wesley Proudfoot. Sire to Marshall, turns out. Yes, sir. Eleven boys I had. Chester was nowhere near the brightest. No, sir, he'd rate about number nine there. Well, that's very uh, interesting, Mr. Chester, Chester bordered on being ignorant, I'd think. Oh, now, I, I can't yeah, imagine how he ever got to be a marshal. Chester Wesley Proudfoot, marshal of Dog City. Well, Look, uh, <laughs> Mr. Proudfoot. <laughs> it I... named all them boys with the middle name of Wesley after me, it did. Hoped at least one of them would mount something, like me. Yeah. What's his name was? It's Adams. Uh, Dr. Adams. 
Doctor had horse or people. <clears throat> what? What's the matter, Hugh? I say, do you doctor horses or people? Yeah, people. Oh, well, it's too bad for you. I wouldn't ever let a people doctor work on me, and I got a great many things wrong with me, too. Hey, where's Chester? Well, he's out getting the mail for me. Well, good for him. Got spunk. Probably running down some of them bad men he always writes about. You'd have an assistant named uh, Dylan working for him. Whatever become of him? Dylan, that, uh, that, that's me, Mr. Podfoot. Matt Dillon, that's oh, me. Oh, yeah. Well, you'll do a fair job, Gordon Chester. Says he can usually depend on you. Well, that's very nice of him. Uh, look, Mr. Proudfoot, maybe you should know something. I... Ah, hello, Don. Yeah, Chester. Uh, there wasn't none too much mail, Mr. John. Forget it, Chester. What? Chester, you've got company. Who's a fat fella? That's Chester. That's the Marshal Proudfoot. <sighs> oh, you know, Mr. Dillon, I... Oh, boy. Act you, Chester? Yeah, that's him, Mr. Proudfoot. Ah, you fatted up a good deal, Chester. Your assistant here looks better than you do. I'd like an explanation. Matter of fact, so would I, Chester. Hmm. Mr. Dillon? Doc, I... Oh, Paul... about Matt? About what, Doc? Chester, telling his father that he's the marshal. What can I do? Well, not going to let him get by with it, are you? Oh, I don't know, Doc. Ah. Wait a minute, Matt. Wait, no, no, no. Let me buy. No? An assistant doesn't make too much, you know. <laughs> Easy, Doc. Hello, Doc. Matt. Oh, kitty. Doc, you're looking pretty strange today. How come? Yeah, tell her that. You tell her, Doc. You're the one looking strange. Well, come on. Somebody tell me. Yeah. Sit down. Thank you. Thank you. Have you seen Chester, Kitty? No. Why? Yeah, we may never see him again. Huh? What happened? Uh, not much, really, but I'm sure he wishes he was dead right now. Oh, what's this all about? Chester's father came to town today. Well, what's so terrible about that? What's so terrible? He thinks Chester is the marshal here. What? Yeah, that's right, Kitty. Chester wrote to his father, and he probably stretched the truth a little bit, like we all do sometimes. Oh, no. Well, where are they now? Over at the Dodge house. He's getting the old man a room there. Yeah, I never saw Chester look so scared in my life, Kitty. You should have seen him. He grabbed his paw, and he lit out of the office like his coat was on fire. Oh, don't be hard on him now. I'm not going to be hard on him. His father must be pretty old. Oh, he's old, all right, yeah. He can't hear good and he can hardly see. But he's a bright old father. Well, you can't let the old man be disappointed, Matt. Well, what would you suggest I do, Kitty? I don't know. Just don't hurt him, that's all. I'm not going to hurt him, Kitty. I don't care if the old man thinks Chester's a marshal. Matt, we should think of something to make Chester look good while his father's in town. Yeah. I heard the old man tell Chester that... He was only going to stay for a few days. Oh, see, Matt. Now, maybe you could lie low for a while. 
I wouldn't mind that. I need a rest. Hey, I got it. Why don't you get somebody to pretend to hold up and then let Chester play marshal and take him in? You can turn him loose when his father leaves. Oh, now, Kitty, I couldn't do a thing like that. Well, something's got to be done, Matt. Yes, did you? I, I could put you to bed, Matt. What are you talking about, Doc? Yeah, you get sick and I'll examine you and say that you've got a, oh, a, a rare blood disease and you have to go to bed for a few days. It might work, Matt. I can't let that old man go away thinking Chester's been lying to him all this time. No. We'll get Moss Grimmett to stage a fake holdup, you see? Then we'll come and get Chester, and right in front of his father, he'll capture the bandit. You're the one with a rare disease, Doc, and it's not in your blood, it's in your brain. I do it, Matt. You got to. No, I don't got to. I don't want any part of a fake holdup. You just get that out of your head. Oh, so. Matt. Oh. Well, I'm going back to the office. Let's oh, see. sure, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Ruin an old man in his last days. Uh, what do you think, Doc? Ed, I... Old Matt will come around all right, Kitty. He always does. I'll go talk to Moss Grimmick and, and have it all set. Anybody here? I say anybody in here with you? Oh, there you are, Dylan. Oh, took you to bed kind of early, didn't you? Ain't but four o'clock. Hello, Mr. Proudfoot. Where's Chester? Yes. Well, I guess you got such a dead little town on your hand, you can do that, you and Chester. I say, where is Chester? Saying something? I said, where's Chester? Don't yell like that. Hurts me a pound when you bell around like that. Got a pretty big voice on you there, Dylan. What's the matter with you? Ah, uh, feeling poorly, are you? I say feeling poorly, are you? I feel terrible. Ah, uh, too bad. Chester ain't feeling too good, neither. Oh. Oh, been lolling around on my bed over to the room house all day. Good thing you boys got this dead town on your hands. Yeah. Ah, uh, people be up the creek with both the marshal and his assistant in bed. Ooch over there. I say, ooch over there. Let me take a look at you. Let me look at your eyes. Tell everything about how a man feels by looking to his... Look at me, Dylan. I can't help looking at you. That's it. Oh, that's but... coming. Yes, sir. You've got bad eyes there, Dylan. That one in particular. You've got a good voice, but bad eyes. Them eyes reminds me of Chester's Uncle Hector. Last time he looked all slack-jawed like that, he died the next day. Huh? What say? I, no, nothing. I didn't say anything. Oh, thought you talked. No. Yes, sir. Hector was Chester's fighting uncle. Reckon that's where Chester gets all his get up and go. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, some different, though. Hector fought again the law, Hector did. Ever seen a man stirred up again the law all the time like old Hector was? Have you had your Ain't dinner you yet, Mr. Proctor? Yeah, oh, indeed, he was a winner. You're right there. Won all his battles. Killed two marshals, Hector did. Killed them dead. Good thing Chester's on the side of the law. Man, that's a pair I got ought to be on the side of the law. Yeah, Matt, you Chester here? ought to be. Oh, oh, hello, Mr. Proctor. Do you Oh, you're here. Yeah. Look here, you got a sick deputy here, Adams. Better go get a horse doctor and get him straightened out. Oh, well. <laughs> what are you doing in bed, Matt? I'm in bed because I'm sick, Doc. Did you ever hear of anything like that? You're sick? Uh-huh. You are, Matt? Oh, oh, see, that's fine. Yeah, well, I figured you'd think so. 
Doc, would you do me a favor and take Mr. Proudfoot out to dinner? Anything, just get him out of here. Yeah, sure, man. You bet you... Oh, gee, your eyes look kind of beady there. Yeah, well, we've been yeah, through all yeah. that. Well, though. if I didn't know that, uh, I'd say that you had a fever. Adam, I say you got a sick boy there, Adam. Doc, would you go right now? Yeah, okay. Oh, sure. Oh, uh, Mr. Proudfoot, you come with me. Come with me, Mr. Proudfoot. I'll take you to dinner. Yeah, dinner? No, no, too early for dinner. Take a little glass of Dutch water with you, though, but don't let on Chester, will you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I'll see you later, Matt, and, uh... I'll, uh, I'll let Kitty know you're with us. Oh, fine, Doc. Good. Yeah. You, you let Kitty know I'm with you. Yeah. You just go. Yes, sir, Adam. That boy there is sicker than a pig. Let Kitty know I'm with you. Doc! Doc, you come back here! Kitty. Where's Doc? Uh, I don't know, Matt. He was here a little while ago. Why? Well, I've wasted a half hour looking at all the Eden houses for him. He's got Chester's father with him. i got to stop him. Stop him from what? From that fool idea that you and he had. What do you mean, fool idea? Doc came by and said it was on, that you were playing sick in bed. Kitty, I was in bed because I really was sick, and I still am sick. Oh. Have you and Doc lost your senses? Well, we're just trying to help Chester, that's all. Now, look, what if somebody else sees that hold-up Moss Grimmick at stage, and how do they know that he's just playing games? Huh? Doc and I aren't going to let anybody get hurt, Matt. And you know, Chester, he'll play along all the way. That's exactly what I'm afraid of. Oh, Kitty! All set, Kitty. Uh, oh, hello, Matt. Oh, you're on your feet for the fun. You call this thing off right now, Doc. Oh, no, 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 it's too late. Chester and his father up at the Dodge house, and exactly three minutes from now, Moss Grimmick is going to rush up there and say there's a hold up at the livery stable. And I'm putting a stop to her before somebody gets... What's that? I don't know. It's not time yet. Oh, come on, Doc. You can watch the fun you started. Yes, come on. You know, something I'll knock your head off. No, Matt, I'll take it easy, Matt. Marshal Dillon. What? You better hurry. Chester just shot a man at the Dodge house. Good Lord! Let me through here, will you please? Move aside. Let me through. Stand back. Matt, Matt, wait. Look. Chester's sitting on somebody. Chester, what are you doing? Get off of that man. Doc, check that one line over there. I will. Stand back. He shot and wounded one fellow, and we subdued the other one. All right, Mr. Ain't a bad night's work, Oh, Chester, will you get up? Well, Mr. Dillon, he, he tried to kill me and Paul. Get up, I said. He's unconscious. Oh, Matt, wait a minute. Look here. What is it, Doc? Look at this man. It's Jack Pargo. What? You're the man on that wanted poster? Yeah, that is Pargo, all right. Matter, Dillon? That fellow friend of yours, is he? He tried to hold up the hotel office here. No, Mr. Proudfoot, it's not a friend of mine. Huh? What say? Or anybody catch that car, man? Chester! Chester! Uh, Hurry up, Chester. There's a hold up at the livery stable. Moss, go home. Yeah, but but Doc told me to. Just go back to your livery stable and call off the hold up, huh? Yeah, yeah, forget it, Moss. Forget it. We've had the real thing, right? Well, well, well. Goodbye, Moss. Yeah, sure. Sure. Goodbye. 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 Yes, goodbye. 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 Now, pull it from here. Notice something here, did you, Dylan? 
Chester was right on the spot, he was. That's the reason he took my bed for so long. Uh-huh. He's got an instinct for these things, Chester has. Put him right here on the spot for this hold-up. Now, there's a reason for everything, I always say, Yeah, Dylan. well, there's a reason, all right. What say, Dylan? Mr. Dillon, I can explain all this. I... No, Chester, you and your father take care of things here. I'm sick and I'm going to bed. Don't count on me taking care of things, Dylan. I'm leaving on the morning stage. Now I saw my boy in action. Yeah, well, all right, Mr. Proudfoot. Goodbye and good luck to you. You, you wait right here a minute, Bob. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what? Mr. Dillon, I... Mr. Dillon, I can explain. You don't have to, Chester. But, yes, sir, I do have to explain. I, I swear I've never been so humiliated in all my whole life. I've been thinking about it all day, Mr. Dillon. I, I, I never wrote but two letters to Pa, and... Well, maybe I did stretch a couple things, but Pa, he... Well, Pa, he, he put it all together and made me out more important than what I am. But I'll set him straight, Mr. Dillon, honest. I will. I'll tell him the truth, and I'll do it right now. Chester. You do, and you're fired. You go on back and help your father take care of things. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Marshall Proudfoot, written by sound man Tom Hanley. Another frequent contributor to Gunsmoke was Marion Clark. Again, Norman McDonald. Marion Clark wrote some 65 to 70 gun smokes, and interestingly enough, uh, one of two women that was terribly successful in the, in the Western field. I met Marion Clark uh, through Kathleen Height, who had uh, taken Marion under her wing in a way. Marion uh, was confined to a wheelchair and not able to get around, but uh, Kathleen had told me a great deal about her uh, during the time that Kathy and I uh, worked on other shows together, like Romance and Rogers of the Gazette and so on. She felt that it would be good therapy if Marion could do a script, and uh, I thought this would be fine. And Marion not only did one script, she did some 69 or 70 more because she was... Uh, had a marvelous insight into the uh, into the woman's side of the Western uh, idiom. There were several things that that were almost a trademark with Marion, and strangely enough, one of them was the sort of sad, wistful tragedy of people moving west and bringing their most treasured belongings with them. And uh, one script in particular of Marion's. I think exemplifies this. It was in July or August of 1958. It was called The Piano, and it's a great example of Marion's work. You want some more pie, Kitty? You might as well, since Doc's paying for it. <laughs> no, thanks, Matt. I've had plenty. Yeah, what happened to make you such a big spender, Doc? Some forgotten relative leave you something in his will? <laughs> might as well, huh? Well, what do you mean, Doc? 
Well, you remember that cowboy got himself shot up in a long branch brawl? Oh, that was a year or two ago. There's been more than one of them. I know that, but Kitty might remember this. She hmm? helped stop the bleeding until I got there. Oh, I remember, Doc. He didn't even have enough money to buy a beer. And we figured he never would have. Well, what happened to him? Well, sir, I had a letter from him this morning. He's had some kind of a payoff in California. And he sent me a $20 gold piece to pay me for what he called my medical services. Wow. Well, that's fine, Doc. I'm glad he made out. Yes, men like him don't often do it. You don't often get paid. <laughs> well, you never know in my business. Dylan, Mr. Dillon. It's Chester, man, at the door. Oh. Hey, and you too, Doc. Hurry up. He means the Doc. Excuse me. Sure. He's going back outside. Somebody must be hurt. I didn't hear any shooting. Now, there are other ways to get hurt, Doc. Over here for the stage, Mr. Dillon. Oh. That man has been hurt, Matt. That's the shotgun messenger, Doc. Somebody must have held up the stage. Mike got shot, Mr. Dillon. He's hurt pretty bad. Let me take a look. What happened, Chester? Well, I don't know for sure. I seen the stage come in just now, and Mike was driving. Mike was driving? Yes, sir, so I knew something was wrong. Then I could see he was hurt, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, Doc. He's trying to say something. Make it fast, man. I got to get him up to my office. Mike, it's Marshal Dillon. What happened? Held up. Driver. Killed. Uh, were there any passengers? No, no. Currency shipment. Twenty thousand. Where'd it happen, Mike? Uh, he's going out now. Mike. Mike. <laughs> try. Please try. Tell me where'd it happen? How many men? Huh? North Hat Creek. Two men. Two. That's all, Matthew. He's unconscious. Yeah. I'll find a couple of men to help you, Doc. Chester, go get our horses. Yes, sir. And hurry. Anyone along here right now, Mr. Dillon? That cracked shoe shows up real plain. Yeah, they've been riding hard, too. They must have slowed down or stopped for a while somewhere. Well, I hope they didn't get no more sleep last night than we did. What's the matter, Chester? You getting old? I know, sir, it ain't that, but my gracious, two hours sleep. It just don't seem worth bothering about, that's all. Well, I hope our friends bothered a little about sleep. Now, if I was carrying $20,000 in bills, I wouldn't never stop. Yeah? Well, you'd have to be riding a pretty unusual horse. But... Well, yes, I guess you're right. But... Wait a minute. Hmm? Looks like they did stop after all. What? They built a fire over there. Yeah, it was them, all right. Yeah, same tracks. I think we picked up a little time on them, Chester. Come on, let's pick up some more. Stuck to the saddle. They're near dark again. Uh, they'll have to stop someplace along here pretty soon, huh? No, I don't know. Hold up, Chester. Those 
tracks are heading down to those bushes along the creek here. Let's go easy. Yes, sir. Up yonder, above the stream there, there's a shack. Oh, yeah, I see it. You think you might maybe a hit out in it? Maybe. I'm not going to ride straight up to find out. We'll leave the horses here. Yes, sir. Now we'll circle around back. Just keep low. Two horses tied up there. Uh-huh. Mr. Dillon, now the other. Yeah. All right, hold it, Joe. They're heading for the horses. You got him. Yeah, but the other one's getting away. Oh, he's out of range. Yes, sir. You go bring the horses up. I'll see about the man I shot. Huh? Well, ain't you going after the other one? He's got a pretty good head start, and it's near dark. I'm not going after him blind. Morning soon enough. All now, go right. on. You get my brother. You get wrecked. Not yet. You heard bad? Yeah. Yeah, that's sure ain't. Chester. Yes, sir. Tie up those horses and come here. We'll carry him into the shack. You're right, sir. What you doing? Yeah. This fellow's horse. Well, what about him? Well, his legs broke. He must have stumbled and he's trying to get away. You reckon I better shoot him? All right, you can do it as soon as we get this man out of the shack. All right, open the door, Chester. I'll keep hold of him. Why, it's locked. You suppose somebody lives in this forsaken place? Oh, I'll find out. Go ahead and knock. Anybody in there? Open up! Anybody in there? There's no need for any more noise at my door. Just finished telling you men you can't stay in my house. You don't need that shotgun, ma'am. We don't mean any harm. I intend to defend my home, sir. No rough men are going to tramp around amongst my fine things. You open the door a little wider, ma'am, and you'll see we're not the same men. I don't open my home to any strangers. I'm Marshal Dillon from Dodge City, and we got a badly injured man here. A United States Marshal? That's right, ma'am. Well, then I guess I'll have to let you in. But I don't hold with your Yankee government. I want that clear. All right, ma'am. Fine. Come on, Chester. <laughs> Now, you just show us where you want us to put it. He hurt bad. Not bad enough. Well, I suppose even a rough man has a right to die in a bed. But mind you, be careful of my things. All right, ma'am. We'll mind. Horse, Mr. Jones, bring the saddle. Ah, good. Hey, ain't things a little strange in there? A little? 
Oh, let's talk about not hurting her fine things. I, there ain't nothing there that's worth carting away except maybe that old pine. Yeah, I know. Everything else is all cracked and broke. Why, most ladies wouldn't give that stuff house room. You gentlemen would care to join me. I fixed a small supper. Well, that's very nice of you, ma'am. How do you say it's nice? Mr. Hanford. He's my husband. Mr. Hanford always said I could spot a gentleman right away. I could see you two were gentlemen as soon as we exchanged pleasantries there in the entryway. Well, thank you, ma'am. Mr. Proudfoot. Ma'am? Please take your hat off my cherry wood piano. Well, ma'am, ma'am, it, it can't hurt nothing. I do not I... allow anything to mar the finish of my beautiful cherry wood pioneer. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Here's your plate. Please sit down. Thank you. I don't imagine your wounded friend will be able to partake. Uh, no, Miss Hanford, he's not likely to come to for some time. That is, if he ever does. I can't imagine how he got his wound. I'd seen him just a few minutes before you gentlemen. Yeah, Miss Hanford, ma'am, didn't you hear the shooting right outside your door? I have trained myself not to see and hear the ugly things of life. I just live here alone among my friends. But uh, you, you said that you have a husband. My husband has been gone for two, three Four years now, Marshal. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry to hear that, ma'am. Mr. Hanford, you'll never be content to live a quiet life. He thought he could when first we came here directly after the war. I had in mind he'd build me a new plantation. But, Marshal, just between you and me, Mr. Hanford didn't appreciate my lovely things. And one day... Well, one day he just moved on west. Oh, well, that's too bad, ma'am. I do not need your pity, sir. I'm content. Well, well sure, of course. I'd I... be obliged if you gentlemen would sleep out there on the veranda. Veranda? Oh, well, that's all right, Chester. We'll sleep on the veranda. Uh, I am going to have to keep an eye on Miller, though, ma'am. I will watch over him, Marshal. Well, no, that's not your job, Miss Hanford. I'm mistress of this house, Marshal Dillon. I will watch over him. I will call you if there's any change. As a matter of fact, I'll look to him right now. Well, all right, ma'am. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, Chester. Mr. Dillon, is that slanty old porch of Rangler? Well, it is to her. My, if she don't beat all. Grave digging isn't supposed to be easy, Chester. It's too permanent. Tell me how many men dies at daybreak, Enos. I mean, when everything else is starting up and all. Well, I guess when you have to die, it's as good a time as any. Where do you reckon his brother is, Benar? Rack, I don't know. 
Well, we're sure going to have a long ride to catch up with him. Mm. I sure ain't one to hurry up a man about his dying, but I sure would have been glad to have been shut of this place for now. What's the matter, Chester? Don't you enjoy southern hospitality? Mr. Dillon, I have to walk around in that old shack on my tiptoes. She's after me every minute about not hurting her things. Gracious goodness, I couldn't hurt them old things if I tried. Well... We can be leaving soon now, Chester. We've done about all we can do. Right? In them bushes. Yeah. And my guns are in the house. Come on. I believe it's customary. Will you get out of the way, please? I want my gun over there. What do you suppose that crazy fool's thinking of? I don't know, Chester, but he must have a good reason for sticking around. His brother? No, I don't think he'd take on these odds when he was pretty sure his brother was done for. I think he's got another reason. Where's the saddle that came off Miller's horse? Uh, over there in the corner? Oh. Be careful of your heavy footsteps. Yeah, well, let's see now. Yeah, that's it. No wonder he stuck around. All that money. Mix up into a right poor little package, don't it? Yeah. So, Dylan, I don't understand the sudden rudeness on your part. I'm sorry, ma'am, but I'm not too polite when I'm being shot at. And you stay away from those windows. I thank you not give me orders in my own house. Chester, let's push the piano in front of that window over there, huh? Right. We're like sitting ducks this way. You will not touch my cherry. All right, come on, piano. Chester. Oh, oh, don't harm it. Oh, don't harm it. All right. I'll watch the front. You take the side, huh? I don't think you'll wait long. How long must I endure this? How long? As long as that outlaw's out there, Miss Hanford. He's not going to let us out of here alive. Who's going to stay here tramping around among my nice things until he goes away? I'm afraid so, man. Well, I'll just order him off my land. Uh, Miss Hanford, come back here. See here, sir. Miss Hanford! You're trespassing. Uh, I want you to ride on... Why, he shot her. Yeah. Ah, there he is, running for the creek. He's down. You got him. Yeah. You go make sure, will you, Chester? Yes, sir. I'll see the Miss Hanford. Miss Hanford. Miss Hanford. I sure did it. You were right. I'm sorry, man. He was no gentleman, was he, Marshal? On a lady's property. No, ma'am, he wasn't. He's dead, Mr. Young. How's Miss Hanford? Not good. Not good at all. Miss Hanford, we're going to take you into your house. No, no. Not just yet, Marshal. Don't move me. Let me die here on the veranda. You'd be more comfortable with me. I won't delay you long. Well, is there anything we can do? I mean, is there any way to make you feel better? You would just see. You would just see that somebody takes care of love it. It would Now. 
really believe Rack Miller would listen to her and go away, didn't she? Yeah. That he was no gentleman. Well, it's just a shame, that's what it is. This Pineana sure must play pretty. The way she loved it. Took care of it, it's good. What are you doing? Oh, I just thought I'd hit me a note or two. She, she wouldn't care, would she? No, I guess she wouldn't. Why? Why don't play at all? Huh? And look here, under the top. All the strings is rusted away, just hanging there. Mister Dillon. This pine ain't made a sound for years. Hmm. Well, I guess I didn't have to play, Chester. Just had to look pretty. It was all she had. Return to the story of Gunsmoke in just one moment.